believe this atmosphere is the prime time to read this passage. It'll be on the screen behind me if you don't have time to find it in your Bible. It's Romans chapter 8, starting in verse 35. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword or any of these difficult, discouraging battles that can be faced in this earth. As it is written, for thy sake we are killed all day long. We're always presenting ourselves as this sacrifice that no matter what you want to do with us, we are accounted as sheep for the slaughter. But in all of these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. And like Paul, I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Heavenly Father, speak freely to your people tonight, Lord. Help us to hear what you would say both in word and in spirit. Open our hearts, our minds, our ears to you, O God. Help me to speak what you want said in this place, Lord God, and let this word resonate with us and go with us from this place. Lord, help us to share it with someone else that they would find hope and healing through your word and your spirit. In Jesus' name. Everybody said, in Jesus' name. Amen, amen. You may be seated. Amen. God is good. <clears throat> and all the time. Oh, thank you for that. I'm so glad you guys got in on that. That's encouraging. I love this language, and I said this last time. It's the language of extreme opposites. It's it's illustrating that there's nothing, nothing that can separate us from the love of God. Neither death nor life, neither angels nor principalities and powers, no, no thing present with us right now and nothing that's going to come at us in the future, no highest height or deepest depth can separate us from the love of God and nothing else aside from this creation can separate us from his love. No other creation can separate us. I can choose to jump out of the hand of God. He's got me in his palm and I can choose to jump out, but nobody else can steal me if my heart is resolved on staying in the love of Jesus. Nobody else can move me out of his hand. Amen. But I get, like many of us, I get caught on this either or. Or, or King James said, neither nor. Neither this nor that. And it's, it's this back and forth mentality that reminded me, as I mentioned last week, of a seesaw or a teeter-totter, depending on where you grew up. Uh, those of you who are younger may not even know what I'm talking about because they've been banned from most playgrounds, considered dangerous. Um, Sister Kayla, do we have a, a, a picture of the teeter-totter? We're talking about a seesaw mentality. And this is, this, like I said last week, this is actually a safety uh, teeter-totter because it's got the tire underneath to keep you from plunking right to the ground 
Brother Jake brought up a, a, an example this last time uh, we were talking about it of another situation that I hadn't really thought of, but somebody can, when they get down to the bottom, kind of nudge their way off and keep their foot on, and you're really up high, and, you know, a grin on their face, I'm sure, as they take their foot off, and you change position rapidly and painfully. And this is, this is how we see life sometimes. Let's go to the one with the, the two little kids on the seesaw. Sometimes we see our lives this way. We're, we are living for the moment where things lift off the ground, where we're on the high end. And, yeah, we know we have to live through this downward cycle in order to get back to this high of the high end of the seesaw that we're trying to. And um, as we discussed last time, I, I, I kind of believe this, this little boy is the older brother, and he's, he's oversized for her. He's, he's not quite matched. So he's having to work hard to stay off the ground. So he's having to kick himself up off the ground. Man, isn't that, isn't that true? Sometimes we just have to pick ourselves up and encourage ourselves in the Lord to get back to that high place. All right, that was not in the notes. <clears throat> but ups and downs and heights and depths, and these are the things that um, Paul is talking about, there's, there's no position in life that's going to separate you from the love of God, even if you are on a mountain or in a valley. And so I, I shared last week that I, I started studying out mountains and valleys in Scripture, and um, I think in our Christian culture, we talked about this last week, in our Christian culture, we simplistically believe that mountains make you feel good, valleys mean you probably feel low, on the mountain, you have victory. In the valley, you have battles. These are the general, simplistic Christian beliefs about mountains and valleys. But what did we discover last week? We talked about three individual situations. Uh, we talked about Moses. Huge operation of the Spirit going on in the mountain where he was up with the Lord for 40 days. Amazing supernatural encounter. But does anybody remember what Moses' experience taught us on the mountain? Hmm? He was by himself. There's a specific point. Sister Becca. Ooh. Being in a high and mighty place with God does not mean that we are high and mighty. So he's coming out of this high and mighty supernatural experience, and on the way down the mountain, he looks at the unrighteousness of the people around him, and he gets so angry, he throws the tablets that had God's handwriting on it. I've been up with God for 40 days. What's wrong with you people? Being in a high and mighty place with God predisposes us to think that we are also high and mighty, and we have to be aware and be cautious about our own spirit as we come down to where we live. We don't live on the mountain. We live, we don't even live in the valley. We live in, the, in between most of the time. <coughs> Being in a high and mighty place can make us feel high and mighty, and we have to be on guard. Secondly, we talked about Elijah, and I, I have to laugh because I went back through my notes, Sister Dory. I have been studying the word of God for a very long time. I promise you, every time I mentioned Elijah's name in my notes, I've said Elisha. So I apologize if you left confused last week thinking, I think, was it not Elijah? Yes, it was Elijah with a J. 
I had it incorrectly in my notes, all the way through my notes. So Elijah's experience on Mount Carmel, where revival comes to Israel, and the Israelites are falling on their face before God, and they're experiencing a turn of heart as they help Elijah uh, eradicate the prophets of Baal. Just a short time later, what was it that Elijah realized? Brother Jake. Mountaintop experiences do not automatically fix systemic issues. Having a high moment with God is fabulous. But when you go home, your home is still going to be home. When you go to your job, it's still going to be where the same place that you left behind. Mountaintop experiences change me a lot more than they change the system around me. So mountaintop experiences alone cannot change systemic problems. It takes killing Jezebel and uprooting that whole system in order for the victory. Thank you. Very thoughtful. Thank you very much. It takes uprooting that whole system to see a true transformation and true revival. Thank you, Sister Allison. And then the last one that we talked about involved both Elijah and Moses and Jesus' transfiguration. So Peter and James and John are up on the Mount of Transfiguration. This account is in Matthew 17, Luke 9, Mark 9. And each one gives us a little bit more information. We know that uh, they, they actually were so tired from their climb up the mountain that the three, apostle, or three, the three apostles had fallen asleep. And when Peter awakes... They're all starting to wake up, and they see Jesus glorified. They see him transfigured. They see him talking with Elijah and Moses. And I didn't mention this last week, but Luke actually tells us they were greatly afraid. How, how can they be afraid on the mountain? Aren't you supposed to feel good on the mountain? Well, Elijah found himself shortly thereafter in, an, in another mountain after his experience on Mount Carmel. He goes over to Mount Horeb. He's not feeling good. He's feeling lonely, depressed, dejected, hopeless, on a mountaintop in a cave on Mount Horeb. So he understands that Peter, James, and John are having this emotional response of fear on the mountain. And out of that fear and just not knowing what to say, according to Luke. Peter says, it's good for us to be here. Let's build three tabernacles. We'll build one for you and one for Elijah and one for Moses. And the same man who one chapter before in Matthew had said, thou art the Christ, the son of the living God. Doctrinal clarity was in his mind. And then the next chapter he's saying, hey, we can worship all three of you. Mountaintop experiences can, what was, what was the truth from what Peter learned? Anybody remember? I know who my note takers are, and a lot of them are on the front row over here, and they've gone to class. <laughs> Peter's reaction on the Mount of Transfiguration reminds us that when we have these high experiences that are highly revelatory and highly insightful, we can also inadvertently open ourselves up to false doctrine. 
So when we have spiritual experiences, we've got to come back to the word. Say, who does this say God is? Who does this say that I am? If I heard something in the spirit, I'm going to measure it by this yardstick and nothing else. If I heard something, I want to make sure that it aligns to the word of God. And then if, if, if I were you, I'd also go run it by your pastor. If it's something that's going to be life-changing, I'm going to talk to pastor about it. The Lord told me to go to Timbuktu and be a missionary. I'm not doing that without talking to my pastor. It might line up with the word, but I've, I want to make sure that he's on board as well. So there, there are three, three truths about different mountaintop experiences that we see. And, and understand, a lot of being on the mountain is good. It's enjoyable. It's, it's fun. But climbing the mountain, probably not so much. Talked about Abraham climbing the mountain, knowing when he gets to the top of the mountain, he's going to sacrifice his son. That is not a joyous, pleasant, uplifting thought. It was a submitted thought. And when he got there, he found a substitutionary sacrifice that God had already provided. But understand that mountains, just like valleys, require submission to what God's trying to accomplish in our lives. And sometimes what he brings, like Elijah on the mountain, when the still small voice came, it came with instruction. It came with reassurance. And that's really what God wanted to give him on the mountaintop. Yeah, there were earthquakes and there was lightning and there was all of this demonstrative power, but that's not why he was on the mountain. He was on the mountain to hear instructions for the future and reassurance for the present. And so I'm trying to challenge our simplistic understanding so that we have a broader thought of what's going on in our lives. It's very easy to say, well, I feel bad, therefore I must be in a valley season. That's not scriptural. You can feel good or feel bad, depend, no, not, not depending on where you are, regardless of where you are. So today I want to talk about valleys and the in-between. So uh, I don't know how many of you will remember this, but I took copious notes when pastor preached. We were, we were actually uh, just a month, month and a half before, the, before COVID broke out in February of 2020. And pastor preached a sermon called The Ten Commandments for the Valley Season. And I'm not going to attempt to copy that. I'm going to send you back to it because, wow, it was rich and meaty and valuable. And I go back to it. And it pops up on my Facebook every year, the day that I posted it, because I wanted it to come back and remind me every year. So February 9th, 2020, if you want to research it, it's, it's Brother George here at this church teaching Ten Commandments for the Valley Season. I would encourage you, as an addition to what I'm about to say, to, to, to go back to that. It's foundational teaching on living through a valley season in a way that glorifies God. That being said, unlike most mountains in Scripture, valleys are places where people choose to dwell. Wait, what? I thought valleys were bad places, Sister Dory. And yet we see in Genesis 26, 17 through 19, that Isaac dwelt in the valley of Gerar, where they found a well of springing water. Exodus 21 and 12, the people of Israel pitched in the valley of Zered. 
Deuteronomy 3.16, the Reubenites and the Gadites decided to share the Valley of Arnon. Why? Because these places are rich in resources. Things you can't find on on the mountaintop grow in the valley. Even Balaam, who... We know he's a wishy-washy prophet in Numbers, and he was called to curse the people of Israel, and all he could speak was truth. And what he said in that passage was, as in in Numbers 24, 6, as the valleys are spread forth, as gardens by the riverside, as the trees of aloes which the Lord hath planted, as cedar trees beside the water. That sounds like a good vacation spot. I want my Airbnb right there. Right on the water. But that's a valley. I don't, I don't want to go to the valley and live there. That sounds really hard. Beautiful. It sounds beautiful. See, some things cannot grow on the mountain. They have to be nourished and cultivated in the valley. And Time in the valley, time that we spend in the valley can be a lot longer than the moments that we spend on the mountain. This is why when last week, when I asked you to talk about what it feels like to be on the mountain, not very many people chimed in. But when I asked about the valley, y'all had a lot to say. Why? Because we spend a lot longer in the valley than we do in the mountain. And thank God, you can't grow on the mountain. You're nourished in the valley. Water flows downward, not upward. So if you're on the mountaintop, you're always in the process of things trickling down into the valley. We need valley seasons. I'm going to say that again. I need time in the valley to grow. Of course, the valley can be more than just beautiful riversides and growing trees, and those stereotypes are there for a reason, right? The reason we think valleys are hard is because we we see it in our own lives. We see it in Scripture. Judges 16 and 4 gives us a really good example of what can make the valley really hard. Judges 16 and 4 says, Samson loved a woman in the valley of Sorek whose name was Delilah. Ooh, that happened in the valley. That happened in the valley. He fell in love with and became intimate with something unclean, uh, unappointed for him. In the valley. Oh, Samson. What are we going to do with Samson? Remember, mountains and valleys are multidimensional experiences. They are never all good and they're never all bad. His relationship with Delilah was never all good, never all bad. Now we look at it and say, what was he thinking? But he was just a guy that fell for a girl. The wrong girl. He knew better. I don't know if he knew that she was trying to give him over into captivity or not, but he should have figured it out by like the fourth or fifth time that she kept asking him, 
what makes you so strong? And then he, she'd try that thing. Or the opposite, to try to like get his strength. <laughs> Love is dumb. Just saying. And our lesson Samson chose to love her. I know this is not a popular message in today's world, but we do choose who we love. Now, you may not get to choose who you're attracted to, but you do get to choose who you love. And you do not have to love who you're attracted to. Just putting that out there. And it In this case, Samson's situation teaches us something, that we should, when we are in a valley season, we should be very careful what we choose to embrace and what we become intimate with during a valley season. Something took Samson through the valley where he met Delilah. I don't know what that something was, but this encounter between them did not have to go in the direction that it went. He made some choices. He chose to embrace what he knew was problematic for his covenant, for his culture, for his God. This woman was an enemy of the people of Israel. Be careful what you embrace when you're in the valley. Samson's choice led to the most painful time of his life. Physical pain, he had his eyes put out. The pain of shame. He's in an honor-shame culture, and he was shamed by his enemy constantly. They would bring him before them and make him like their court jester, and uh, now he's blind, and they're taking advantage of that. And then the shame of the lack of strength that came from his betrayal of God's covenant. Intimacy with our chosen sins will lead to pain. Be careful what you become intimate with during a valley season. Now, what's interesting, because valleys are multidimensional, Samson's experience is not all bad. The moment that razor stopped cutting his hair, his commitment to the covenant started growing again. The moment they were done shaving his head, his covenant restarted. And then he had time in that mill, walking around grinding grain in the mill. He had time for it to continue to grow, to continue to recultivate his commitment to the point that even in this valley season, God positions him for the greatest outcome of battle he's ever had. His very last attack on the Philistines comes by the strength that God gives him again. And he kills more in his death than he killed while he was alive. All of that could have been a very different story if Samson had made a different decision. I don't know what that story would look like. But it would have been different if he would have chosen not to embrace the enemy during a valley season. Amen? And then that's, that's kind of my example tonight of what not to do. And really what I, what I wanted to share with you, what I wanted to talk about is what to do. And I feel like a very good example of what to do when you're headed into a valley 
is found in 1 Samuel 17. Now, I'm going to read some scripture, so you might want to keep your Bible open to this chapter. 1 Samuel 17. Because a battle's about to go down. And this is a lengthy reading, but it's, this, it's a familiar account. And I'm going to be kind of interrupting the, the reading of the scripture to give some key points that I find in this passage. Um, in verse 1, it says, Now the Philistines gathered together their armies to battle. Always the Philistines. Man, they were troublemakers. Philistines gathered together their armies to battle against, of course, Israel. They were gathered together at, Sh- I'm not going to say that right, Shekot something like that, Shoko, um, which belongeth to Judah and pitched between Shoko and Azekah in that place which starts with an E, Ephesdemim. And Saul and the men of Israel were gathered together and pitched by the valley of Elah and set the battle in array against the Philistines. Now, this should start sounding familiar. The Philistines stood on a mountain on one side, And Israel stood on a mountain on the other side, and there was a valley between them. Now, we talked last week that the mountain is sort of an advantageous viewpoint. It it gives you clarity of perspective. And so they have this clear visual of the enemy. So something to keep in mind is the mountain can give you a clear visual of the enemy unless you're in, like, the Smoky Mountains, which does happen where the valley is so filled with uh, obscurity, you can't see it. In this case, they had positioned themselves on the mountain on both sides, the Philistines on one, the Israel on the other, so they could see each other. And then every day, this one guy is coming down out of the mountain into the valley, and he's got a very specific mission. He's also got a very specific look. He is a giant, and he's coming down in verse 10. He says, I defy the armies of Israel this day. Give me a man that we might fight together. Daily, every day, he's calling this out, and all the soldiers of Israel can hear it. Every day. They have the same response in verse 11. When Saul and all Israel heard those words of the Philistine, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. Ooh, they even had the higher ground. They're they on the mountain, feeling dismayed, greatly afraid. Why? Because they were focused on the enemy. They were focused on what they could see rather than on what they knew to be true. They were afraid, even though they had this high perspective. And even though they understood uh, what was being offered to them, all you got to do is beat Goliath, and then you get freedom. That's quite an offer. And the Philistines will be your slaves. It's quite an offer. They were terrified because of the size of this guy. Because they didn't know exactly what to, I don't even I don't even know what was going through their mind. Because I can't comprehend. You are the children of Israel. You are literally the called people of God. You have this unique favor and connection with the creator of the universe. 
and yet you're stuck at the base of this mountain. Fearful to move forward. The enemy always looks bigger when we focus on him. Verse 26, you know, David has come on the scene. And he came with good intentions. His, his intentions got questioned, by the way. I don't have this passage, this part in, in my notes. But his older brother's like, I know the naughtiness of your heart. You just came here to see the battle. You don't even know what you're doing. Oh, it hurts to have your intentions questioned in the valley season. When you're just trying to do the right thing, you're just showing up trying to serve the Lord. So David shows up in verse 26. He speaks to the men that stand around him saying, what, what's going on here? What shall be done? Not, not what's going to be done uh, for, uh, uh, is, in terms of Israel, not, not what is Israel going to get for this, but what's going to be done for the man that kills this Philistine and takes away the reproach from Israel? He's not looking for an award from, you know, he's not looking like win a, whatever the equivalent of an Oscar is in battle. The Medal of Honor. He's not looking for that. He's, his next statement gives clarity for who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? Who does he think he is? I know who my God is, but who does this guy think he is? David's focus was on God and on God's ownership and responsibility to care for Israel. David understood, Saul may be the king, but I know the king of kings. I know whose I am. And his focus was not on the enemy, it was on God. So verse 32, David says to Saul, not just let me go fight, but let no man's heart fail because of him. Thy servant will go and fight this Philistine. And David, or Saul says to David, thou art not able. Sometimes people who are on the same side that you're fighting on are going to discourage you. Tell you, you're not ready. You're not good enough. You don't know enough of the Bible to teach that Bible study. Oftentimes that comes from inside our own heads, doesn't it? Still a lie. All you got to do is know more than your th the person you're teaching. <laughs> and be humble enough to say, you know what, I haven't looked into that recently. Let me double check and I'll get back to you. So Saul says, you, you aren't able to. You're not able, ready to go against this Philistine to fight. For you're just a youth. And he is a man of war from his youth. And David says to Saul, look, here's my resume. Thy servant kept thy fa his father's sheep, and there came a lion and a bear and took a lamb out of the flock. Two, two different encounters. I went after them and smote them and delivered it out of its, his mouth. And when he arose against me, I caught him by his beard and smote him and slew him. Literally killed a lion with my bare hands. Thy servant slew both the lion and the bear, and this uncircumcised Philistine, this animal, shall be as one of them, 
seeing he has defied the armies of the living God. David said, moreover, the Lord that delivered me out of the paw of the lion and out of the paw of the bear, he will deliver me out of the hand of the Philistine. I know who is really in charge of this battle. And I trust him. I've proven him. He's already helped me win against some pretty ferocious foes. This is, this is Brother Brian, the word of his testimony. He's not bragging on himself. He's presenting his case of why he's able to fight in the name of the Lord. For the purpose of the Lord. So David brought his word of testimony to bear in preparing for the battle. He was encouraging himself just as much as he was telling everybody else what the Lord had already done. Sometimes when you're getting ready to go into a, a valley, you got to remind yourself, we've been through this before. I've always come out on the other side. God has always been faithful. It didn't matter the size of the enemy that was sent against me. God always gave me the strength to overcome. And you start to speak to yourself, encouraging words in the Lord. And it changes the way that you come to the valley. He's still technically on the mountain at this point, saying all these things. Man, it's easy to trash talk the devil when you're on the mountain. But he believed what he was saying. And so he, he gets out uh, uh, down toward where the Philistine is standing. And in verse 43, the Philistine says to David, Am I a dog that you come to me with staves? And the Philistine cursed David by the Philistines' gods. And the Philistine said to David, Come to me, and I will give thy flesh to the fowls of the air and to the beasts of the field. The trash talk continues. Then said David to the Philistine, Look, I'm going to tell you right now who I am and who I serve. You're coming to me with a sword and with a spear and with a shield. These are weapons that I don't have access to. But I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom thou hast defied. And this day will the Lord deliver thee into my hand, and I will smite thee and take thy head from thee. And I will give the carcasses of the host of the Philistines, not just you, Goliath, but we're going for all the enemy, the host of the Philistines this day unto the fowls of the air, and to the wild beasts of the earth that all the earth may know that I am David. No, that there is a God in Israel. And this whole assembly shall know that the Lord saves not with these measly weapons you're bringing to me. This whole battle belongs to him, and he's going to give you into our hands. Wow. What a declaration. And it came to pass that this made Goliath mad. The Philistine arose and came and drew nigh to meet David, and David ran toward the army to meet the Philistines. He ran into the valley. Knowing there was going to be a battle, knowing there was a hero down there trying to take him out, knowing it was going to be rough, he ran toward the valley. He ran toward the battle. 
And this is what happens when, you're, when we allow our perspective to be changed by the word of God, by our experiences we've had with the Lord. Once I know the power of my true king and I know whose army I'm part of, now I can run in faith toward the enemy into my valley season. Knowing that victory is on the other side. You know what you know what Saul's army was really doing? They were camped out at the mountain of their last victory. Not wanting to descend into the valley where the next battle would happen. Fear had immobilized them at the base of their last mountain. We all try to do that sometimes. Man, I had a great experience up on the mountain. I'm just going to camp here for a little bit. Because I know when I go down there, things are going to get rough. I might have financial stress. I might have difficulty in the workplace. I might have a tough time at school. My kids might get picked on. Things might affect my family. Maybe they're getting woken up in the middle of the night with bad dreams. Understand, battles happen. And we can be very hesitant to want to leave our nice, safe, warm camp at the base of our mountain. But when I know who I belong to, and that he is going to take care of me no matter where I find myself. There is nothing that can separate me from the love of God. I can run with faith and certainty toward the enemy. And you know what happens? The battle gets a lot quicker. It happens a whole lot faster than if I'm dragging my feet. His victory that day was in a short period of time. He took five stones into the valley with his slingshot. He only had to use one. And then he was able to run to where that giant soldier had fallen and use his own sword to cut the head. Don't forget to cut the head off the giant, by the way. Sometimes you're only taking him out for a little bit. You want to make sure that sucker's good and dead. When you're battling an enemy in the valley, don't stop until he's dead. Now, I'm not talking to the physical. Y'all know. We're talking spiritual warfare. We battle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers. But like I said about Jezebel, you've got to uproot that at, at the root. Somebody's got to kill Jezebel and get that whole system out for there to be true revival. Don't forget to kill the giant. And what happened next, it was a series of events. What I want to focus on is 1 Samuel 18, 4 through 7. Jonathan, Saul's son, the heir apparent. If you know how royalty works, it's usually the firstborn son that gets that throne. Jonathan, the heir apparent, takes him, takes his own clothing. He stripped himself of the robe that was upon him, gave it to David, and gave him all his garments, even his sword and his bow and his girdle, or his belt. And David went out whithersoever Saul sent him, behaved himself wisely, and Saul set him over men of war, and he was accepted in the sight of all the people, also in the sight of Saul's servants. And it came to pass as they came, when David was returned from the slaughter of the Philistine, that the women came out of all the cities of Israel singing and dancing to meet King Saul with tabrets 
and joy and music, uh, instruments of music. And the women answered one another as they played, saying, Saul has slain his thousands, and David has slain his ten thousands. He really just killed one guy, one really big guy, and maybe a few others that day. He'd been on the battlefield for a day. See, your valley season, unlike any other, can reveal your true identity to those around you. And all of a sudden, you've got the prince, the crown prince, the one who's supposed to succeed his father, taking everything that he owns and giving it to you because he recognizes you're the man. You're the one. You're the one with the authority. You're the one with the faith. You're the one that I can come to in times of trouble. You're the one I can trust with this level of authority. And Saul begins to elevate him, trusting him to go places and represent the throne, represent the crown in our current understanding. And I, I see the same, the, the same thing happen with Joseph, right? God positions them in valley seasons only to elevate them out of those valleys. And if they'd never walked through those deep, dark moments, if they'd never encountered a giant, we wouldn't even know David's name. Why are we so afraid of the battle in the valley when God is positioning it as a blessing to us? It's a source of blessing and elevation, not for our own pride, but outcome of, of both Joseph and David is salvation. Joseph was able to preserve the life of all of Israel, and David was able to uh, be part of the lineage of the Savior. Why do we run from the valley when God wants it to be a place of blessing for us? Amen. Let's stand. Mountaintop moments and valley seasons are always multidimensional. And they're never all good. I know I've said this like six times in the last two weeks. But I'm reminding us, they're never all good and they're never all bad. There are valleys that we need to traverse over time. And so we should be careful what we choose to love and embrace and admire and, and allow ourselves to be attracted to as we travel through the valley because that choice will determine so much about how we will be empowered to fulfill our potential over time. My choices in the valley matter. Don't avoid the battle. It just makes things worse. You're going to encamp base of your mountain and refuse to go forward because there's a valley ahead of you with, filled with enemies? No, that's an opportunity to win. A valley with an enemy is just a victory waiting to happen, folks. Don't avoid, don't avoid the battle. And battles can happen anywhere. Valleys, mountains, in between. Gone is the understanding that mountains are all about living out of victory and never having a battle. Jonathan pressed his way up through the Philistines, up the side of a mountain. Battles can happen on the mountain just as much as in the valley. 
And like Elijah, we can be at the top of the mountain just having experienced our greatest spiritual supernatural encounter and revival and still feel bad. Our feelings will lie to us. Whether you're in the valley or you're in between or you're on the mountain, your feelings will lie to you and try to tell you, try to manipulate you so that you act in certain ways and don't act in other ways that express and, and live out your faith. We've got to start listening. What's that still small voice trying to teach me? There's instruction and assurance coming from somewhere if I'm on a mountaintop and still feeling bad. We must, I said this last week, be very careful trying to judge where you are in your present moment. Because if you're saying, I feel bad, so I must be in a valley, or I feel good, so I must be on a mountain, you could be deceiving yourself. Live in the moment with Jesus. It doesn't matter where he takes me. Because neither height nor depth nor any other creature can separate me from the love of God. And we get hung up in our minds thinking, why does God have me in this valley? Why do I have to be here? I'm so sad. I'm so depressed. I'm so whatever. And I've been through that. I'm not judging. I'm just saying. We have the right to choose a different perspective. Here's a battle God has given me to win. Here is a battle that God has given me to become the victor. And I'm going to conquer this one and move on to the next. It's a change of perspective and a change of mentality that can empower you to truly fulfill the potential you have in Jesus. I don't, I don't have to know if he's got me on a mountain or a valley. A lot of times I can't tell till I turn around and get full 2020 vision looking backwards. And that's okay. You don't have to know. You just have to trust him. He's going to hold your hand all the way through. He is with you. And I agree with Paul. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Not tribulation, not distress, not persecution, not famine, not nakedness, not peril, not battle, not sword. As it is written, For thy sake we are killed all the day long. We are counted as sheep for the slaughter. But in all of these things, I am more than a conqueror because he loves me. Through his love I can conquer. I am persuaded that neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities nor powers, the things that we battle and grapple with, nor things present nor things to come, nor mountaintops nor valleys, nor any other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ our Lord. I am persuaded, fully convinced, 100% assured that nothing is going to separate me from the love of Christ. Amen? Amen. Would you just lift your hands right now? Let's entertain his presence one more time. God, you've been so good to us. Thank you, Lord, for reminding us that you're in the valley. You're in the mountaintop, Lord Jesus. You are the king of kings, and you've won 
battle after battle after battle. I don't have to be afraid of the enemy. I don't have to be afraid of the dark valley. I can run in and claim the victory for the kingdom of God, knowing that you are with me, that you are working, that you will give me strength, that you will give me victory. God, I thank you, Jesus, for everyone that's here in this place. I pray right now, God, that you will go with us this week, Lord. Let the refreshing that visited us earlier, God, go with each of us today. Help us, Lord, as we come back together for prayer on Friday and for service on Sunday. Lord, help us to be mindful of someone to invite to your house. Maybe they find themselves in a valley and they're waiting on us to come and show them the way out. God, I pray that you would minister, Lord, in every family that's represented in this house, Lord Jesus, that you would show yourself steadfast and faithful on their behalf this week, Lord Jesus. Keep our pastor safe as he travels home and be with us this, uh, the rest of this week, Lord Jesus. Everybody said in Jesus' name, amen. You are dismissed in Jesus' name, amen.